Hello and welcome to The Sacred. This is a podcast about our divisive public conversations, how we can overcome our own tribalisms, and what does it mean to build real relationships across difference. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and every episode I talk to someone involved in some way in public debates, from academics to journalists, from comics to novelists. I ask them what they hold sacred, what has formed them, and what they've learned about connecting with people who belong, behave, and believe differently from themselves. Before we kick off, I wanted to ask a favour. If you're enjoying the podcast, would you rate it or even review it in iTunes or wherever you listen? It really helps keep it visible so other people can discover it. And thank you for those of you who are already sharing the podcast and telling your friends. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation that I had with Ramona Alley. Ramona is a journalist who writes for The Guardian, presents Pause for Thought on BBC Radio 2, Something Understood on Radio 4, and the podcast Things Unseen. Previously, she was deputy editor of Amel, which was a glossy Muslim lifestyle magazine, and is director of communications of the Exploring Islam Foundation. We spoke about how she finds riches and wisdom in a wide range of faith traditions, but is ultimately in love with Islam. How she deals with the abuse she gets as a public Muslim woman, and why she loves going to Friday night dinner with her Jewish friends. I hope you enjoy listening. Ramona, I'm going to kick off with a really tricky question that I uh, throw at people at the start of every sacred podcast, uh, which is about your sacred values. Do you have a a principle or a value or a way that you've tried to live your life um, that feels very central to your identity? And that if someone tried to take away or get you to compromise on, you'd react quite strongly to that threat. Did anything come to mind as you you were pondering this? Would I hurt anybody if they take it away from me? Um, Where do I start with what I hold sacred? I hold the truth sacred and humanity. I mean, like the human journey, I am fascinated by it and by the experiences that all the different people have through through religion, through belief, through culture, literature, I am just really excited by it. And I think that has been part of my journey, my own journey for basically all of my life. Uh, and the divine, if anyone tried to rip the divine away from me, um, I think that would just leave me like, I would shrivel up and die, I think. So if the divine was taken away from my life, uh, because at the moment it's in everything I do, um, then yeah, I would feel like I, I'm, a, I'm a, a an empty shell. <laughs> I love that you've used the word the divine rather than perhaps God or another word. Is that very conscious? Is that something that you've inherited? Where does that come from? Oh, um, I think, you know, God can be such a loaded term. Um, and also people have their own kind of prejudices or perhaps baggages when it comes to words like this and defining things in, 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 in ways that perhaps aren't very universal. And I think the, the divine, the divine is something that is a bit more universal. And for me, it, it, in the parlance that I do speak in, in, in the public, in like in the media, I feel, I feel like the divine is something that is something that people can connect with a lot more deeply and something that is, you know, perhaps, you know, imbuing lots of people's lives. Um, you know, in some shape or form. So yeah, I feel like it's a bit more universal. I want to wind back because one of the things we try and do in this podcast is give people a sense of where these voices that they hear in the public conversation come from. What are the stories of their lives? So tell me a little bit about your childhood. Where did you grow up? And particularly if there were any big ideas, whether religious or political or philosophical, that you feel have formed you, that have helped make you the woman that you are today. 
Oh, so I feel that my story is very much, um, it begins with my backstory. So that's my parents uh, coming over to the UK from India uh, in the 60s. And the way they brought me up was, I think it was what I would term as a, a real religious upbringing because it was very, it was pretty liberal and it was very open-minded and we had many different types of uh, friends, like my parents were friends with every every single uh, religion you can think of. So it was like uh, Jews, uh, atheists, uh, Christians, everyone, everyone you can think of, Sikhs. And I just kind of grew up with that. That was very organic for me to see my my parents being friends with everybody and just being so open and 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 welcoming and loving. And so I kind of feel like I've grown up with lots of different religions and cultures uh, in my life. Uh, we kind of grew up having a Christmas tree in my house as well, which was probably something maybe quite common to a lot of Muslim families. But, you know, I have spoken about it in some of my work and and there were some challenges. Oh, when I was younger, I remember saying in the mosque once, I was like a kid, I think I must have been around eight years old or something. And there was a one of the community leaders saying, oh, so children, we don't celebrate Christmas, do we? And I was like, we've got a Christmas tree though. I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, and he kind of like, yeah, let's not worry about that. So it was like, it was something like, it was something that was fun. And it was something that we all just embraced um, as Muslims in Britain as well, because it was just like the, the kind of the dominant atmosphere at the time. I mean, throughout my life, it's been like that. So yeah, I've enjoyed it because I feel like it enriches uh, my faith experience and who I am. Tell me what the rhythm of uh, that childhood looked like, obviously with a Christmas tree at Christmas, but um, what did... A little a- plastic one, which was very you know, tiny and like yeah. <laughs> really nothing to write home about. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's not as magical <laughs> as, as it was, But it was magical to me, you know. <laughs> yeah. What did the rhythm of your life look like? In what ways did your parents' Muslim faith um, express itself? So I, my mum taught me how to uh, read the Quran. There was two things she gave me. She taught me how to read the Quran and how to pray. And those were the basic tools, really, and everything else was about you know, morals and uh, principles, and uh, you know how to be with with other people. Uh, and I think that I, I still remember though those lessons because I was very young; I must have been around five years old when I started learning it. And and I said like that that was my first real kiss, like when I kissed the the sacred Quran. Um, you touch, you kiss the front cover, and you put it on your forehead. Uh, something that a lot of kind of Asians do. Uh, and I just love that because I kind of opened it up with a kiss and I sealed with sealed it with a kiss as well. So there was just this love right from the beginning for my faith, for for the the word of of God or the divine. And uh, yeah, it's just been with me ever since, really. Gosh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> I wanted to ask, uh, and this is quite a personal question, so feel free to bat it off. But lots of people I've spoken to who would call themselves religious have at periods in their life really wrestled with it. Perhaps if they grew up with a religious identity, there came a point where they either rejected it for a while or they had to really make it their own. And I became a Christian a little bit later in life, but I had a period of that of my own of trying to be an atheist. Mm. Has it always been something that's quite straightforward for you or has it been more complex in that way? Oh, gosh. I don't think anything is straightforward when it comes to belief. Um, I've had episodes as well where you're like, is there a God? Because you really have to question things. I question things a lot. I critique things. I kind of, whatever I'm reading, I will always be wondering what is the reason behind this? What what are the, what's the wisdom in it? So yeah, I have had times where I have had felt the challenge of, of being a Muslim for sure. Um, and it's difficult because you kind of have, 
your challenges internally, but also externally. So, uh, you know, in the media, like you always have to kind of be a certain type of person, like you have to be strong in it. But, you know, I do try to be open about my um, experiences and I have done that with with some of my work on radio. Like I will say, look, it is a challenge, um, but the challenges, with the challenges come kind of different pathways and different you know, growth um, and different lessons. And I think it's a constant learning curve with religion. It's Nothing is really straightforward and simple, um, but I like that. I love that it's complex. And I think that, you know, you know, it's like I say our love is complicated. <laughs> My relationship with God is complicated, but I like that because it keeps it alive. It sounds like your parents really soften this for you. But do you remember a time in your life when you became aware that being a Muslim was perceived by some as outside the norm, that it wasn't the majority culture of the UK where you grew up? Oh, yeah. Um, so I grew up in Kent in a village, uh, working class village in Kent. And uh, I, we were the only Muslims in the village. Uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> and also we were the only Asians at that time, too. So I I'm very conscious that I have all these different uh, you know, aspects to, to who I am. Um, and I and when I was very young, I think I was around five years old again. Uh, that was my first experience of prejudice when a li- another child just kind of called me the four letter p word and i was like i'm not i'm not i'm an indian um but and i realized that i was the outsider in my own home and i think that was from a very young age um and so that was difficult but also i think it became something that really became a strength for, for later on it, it made me quite resilient and made me think about things from different perspectives as well which i think is really essential to what i do because that can really feed your empathy as well and your compassion, um, as well as kind of like introspection as well. So that that helped. I'm really way. interested to hear you just describe it as the four letter P word. And I, forgive me if I'm if this is kind of Am ignorant I to say. Or I don't know. No, well, that, that would be my question for you, really, because I, you know I know it, I know it as a very offensive term that is used abusively. Yeah, but I haven't heard someone avoid saying it before. And is that uh, for your own? well-being you don't like saying it is it for other people is that quite common that people might treat it like the n-word I'm I'm learning I think it's mainly for other people because I I I have said it before because people have used that term on me and quite a few Asians will use it as well to describe themselves I actually wrote for a blog uh, by an American Pakistani woman and it was called AmericanPaki.com and so I I talked about this very experience that I, I just mentioned about when I was young and someone called me that. Um, and just about being a, a freshie as well, like being a, you know, being the, the uh, second generation freshie really. So I, I called it from freshie to British Muslim, one, one piece I wrote. And that was about my, my parents' experience and then how we are now navigating a very different identity really. Because we kind of grew up as Asians and then after 9-11 happened really, the Muslim part became very prominent. Um, so I used to be called things like to do with my race before. And after that, I, I used to be, you know, insulted for my faith. Yeah. So it was quite interesting to be viewed as a Muslim pr- primarily, not as an Asian. Yes. Uh, but it, it all intersects for me. Um, yeah. You know, I've got, so it's a complicated package. Yes. <laughs> I have been interested by listening to people talking about how in the, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s, it was, uh, race was the key identifier that kind of justice movements yes. were around and anyone of any kind of non-white ethnicities often saw themselves as black or as non-white mm. um, and 
the slight distorting perhaps that's happened where religion becomes the key identifier and you see this mm. perhaps not distorting but a certain difference where identity politics does seem to be um, sorting us into smaller and smaller slices of identity. Yes, yeah, I, I think that is uh, worrying actually. So we really compartmentalise ourselves. We kind of, we've got a very strong minority mindset where we put people into separate pockets and we don't really see humanity as a whole of incredible individuals. And I think that can be quite, uh, it's very restrictive actually in a way mm. and damaging where we kind of, you know, yeah, actually, it's a way to distance people as well when you put people in these kind of yeah. categories rather than feeling like we're all in this together. We're all different, but we're all in this together. Yeah. You described yourself as a British Muslim who draws on multiple identities, ethnically Indian, symbolically Arab, spiritually Persian, oh, and oh. culturally British. Did I say symbolically yeah. Arab? <laughs> I'm not Arab. <laughs> I found oh, it. You, oh, did I say that somewhere? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, I found it really interesting. Um, tell me about the spiritually Persian bit. Gosh, I can't remember what I write sometimes. Um, <laughs> spiritually Persian because the Persian poets uh, are hugely influential on me, uh, like Rumi. Um, one of them, I mean, there's many, uh, and also Shams Tabrisi, Hafiz. I mean, I, I derive so much beauty and wisdom from their words. And, uh, for example, Rumi, he was a, a scholar as well, a scholar of Islam, as well as an incredible poet. And mainly Sufi? That yes, tradition, yeah, I believe, yeah. yeah, the Sufi uh, tradition, which I, I find absolutely fascinating. I mean, I would never call myself a Sufi. I'm, I'm terrible. I'd fail at every, <laughs> every level. But, it, you know, I do get a lot uh, of wisdom from that tradition. Um, there's this wonderful Rumi quote about um, the mirror you know, the truth was the mirror in the hand of God and it fell and broke into pieces and people picked it up and they thought they had the truth. And I just think that there is the truth in, in all different belief systems um, and, it, and it all kind of just does come together and reflect the divine majesty. So you've told us a bit about your childhood. What led you into journalism? How did that become your kind of the thread of your career path? It took me a a little longer than normal, I suppose. Um, but the first piece I wrote was at university for the student magazine. Um, and then it took me a few years after that to get into it, finally. to What, get were, you, into what were you studying? I studied uh, English literature and classical studies um, at Royal Holloway. And I absolutely loved that. I, I was pretty obsessed with Greek tragedy and <laughs> Homer and and Shakespeare and Austin and Dickens. And, and I just, I just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest, before going into university, because a lot of Asians did not do that at that time. Um, people were like, why, why are you doing that? They didn't even understand what I was doing. Uh, but my parents were very happy with me doing that. So um, I loved it. I breathed it. And uh, I just, uh, yeah, I, I kind of like, you know, imbibed it as well, really, the words. It was just wonderful. Loved it. You are one of the presenters on a programme called Something Understood, which is tucked away in the BBC Radio 4 schedules. It's on really early in the morning, isn't really it? Really early. I, I don't ever listen to it. It's like 5am. <laughs> Not that time. It's, it's like 6am like on a Sunday morning and also repeats at 11 uh, that evening. So, yeah. But it's online, so I kind of catch it later on. I mean, yeah. all the other presenters are just, yeah, it's so wonderful. I really love that programme. It's one of my favourite bits of uh, kind of religiously themed or philosophically themed content mm. really made anyway. So I think, I always think it's such a shame that so few people know it's there, but hopefully in the world of podcasts, more people 
Mm. Uh, will do. It's hard to describe. How do you describe it as one of the presenters? So you pick uh, a theme and then you explore it through different religious traditions, uh, through literature, through music, uh, through poetry. And uh, I, I've done things like the divine feminine, uh, seclusion, and I've just looked at different traditions and I've actually learned so much as well as kind of like revisiting the stuff I did at uni. Um, and also just all the passions that, you know, that I love in literature and music. And it's just such a beautiful explorative journey for half an hour only. It feels, uh, it's, it doesn't feel that long at all um, to cover so much, but I, I just, it really expands my understanding of, of different experiences and different faith traditions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so rich. And um, one of the things I love about it is, is how much I learn also. And it sounds like from an early age, you were encountering other faiths and some of the work that you've done has been in a kind of interfaith or multi-faith space. What have you learned about how we can engage across the differences of what we believe? Well, for me, I really find resonance in so much that I, I write about. So, you know, in Sikhism, in Hinduism, in the in the different, in ancient Greeks, you know, uh, in, in so, so many different, uh, you know, uh, kind of that is a kaleidoscope, isn't there? Out there, and I just really think that that we all complement each other, or uh, there are there are moment there are um, wisdoms in all of them that really do kind of unite in some way, or there are also things that are completely alien to me, uh, but they they really do open my mind up in different ways, and I just think that's it's just incredible to open your heart up and your mind up to all these different traditions. It enriches my own experience, I think, my own experiences of faith, um, my experiences of different types of literature. And, you know, uh, and it's just a growing, I mean, life is just about learning and about growing. And that's what I feel I'm doing all the time with, with what, through my work. So what keeps you a Muslim? Because we had a guy <laughs> on called John Lloyd who oh, yeah. um, said something very similar to what you were saying about the wisdom in these different traditions and sucking in knowledge. But he would say there's no need to just pick one or ha even have a main position. You can just cherry pick the best bits from each tradition. But you clearly are a Muslim. So mm. why, uh, what, why do you, um, why is that your primary identity and your primary source of wisdom, even as you can recognise the goodness in others? Mm. I, well... To be brief, I'm in love with my faith. I feel like th there is so much richness and there's just so much dynamism and there is so much beauty that we d that a lot of people don't actually know about. And I am learning all the time. There is just, there is so much in my faith tradition, my own faith tradition that, that I am, I am constantly, constantly absorbing uh, through everything that I read, that I hear. Uh, through experiences with other people as well, through relationships. Um, and I, if I, it would be like falling out of love and just having my heart broken <laughs> if I leave it. Uh, yeah. So for me, it's, it's something that is, it's, it's like a, it's like a, a sea of knowledge there that I've just literally dipped into. And I just need to, I need to dive in a bit more. <laughs> oh, that's really beautifully expressed. I do think sometimes one of the things I find frustrating about some forms of interfaith work is the assumption that really every, every faith tradition is just the same underneath. And sometimes I want to say there's goodness and wisdom and beauty in, in, in so many of these places, but there is particularity too. You know, oh, there yes, is, 100%, there, yeah. there are some quite specific claims in these faiths and it's okay to say, actually, 
you know, everyone comes from somewhere and I come from here. And I think there's a unique offering um, in this place. And obviously I'm, I'm a Christian. I would I want to sort of make that case for where I come from. But I think there's ways of doing it that are kind and don't necessarily have to um, position everyone else as the enemy. Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. I mean, I it's like like you feel like you're completely at home and there's just a huge sense of belonging um, when you look at your own faith tradition and I, and I love going to other people's houses <laughs> in a way. Like I feel like a guest that I'm, I'm, I'm exploring theirs as well, but like with my own, it's, it's like, it's the hearth, it is the home. It is, it is my soul and my heart in there. And I, I just wouldn't be able to leave it without self-destruction. I feel <laughs> yeah. really, yeah, I feel like I would. Yeah. That's powerful. Mm. So you have at various points, well, you're a public Muslim in that you're a public person um, uh, who speaks about your Muslim faith, but you also have had professional roles at ML Magazine and uh, um, the Understanding Islam Foundation. By oh, the Exploring Islam Exploring Islam, Islam Foundation. Foundation, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I found when I stopped working at the BBC and became head of Theos, slightly tricky adjustment to being a public Christian rather than having my faith and then my professional life separate. Uh, and I do sometimes feel that it's both a great privilege, but also quite a high pressure to feel like you're in some ways representing something and representing a group of people yes. that what you do and say might have a knock-on effect to how people feel about the religion in general or as a whole. How do you deal with those kind of challenges? Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one, really. Um, it's always difficult to kind of speak publicly about your faith um, and, and like be seen as a representative. I've, I've never claimed to do that, but how can you kind of distance yourself from it, really? Uh, when you're out there, they're going to say, oh, you know, that Muslim was talking about this. So I've always said that, you know, I'm speaking in my own capacity about my own uh, views on this, uh, generally speaking. But when I was uh, with the Exploring Islam Foundation, um, so I had to be the spokesperson for our PR campaigns. And it, uh, we did one in uh, 2010 called Inspired by Muhammad. And that was very public. There was a, there was a series of billboards that were put on the uh, TFL uh, Transport for London. So it was on the underground and on taxis and at bus shelters. And it was all about the universal uh, principles that were inspired by by prophet, the prophetic model, um, like women's rights and social justice. So I had to talk about this on like on the Today program on, on Radio 4, on like on BBC, on Al Jazeera. It was like it went global, not just national. And I was literally like the face of of this campaign of, of, well, of the Exploring Islam Foundation. And that, that was very challenging because I wasn't really that ready for it. And I didn't realise that the response would be so overwhelming. Uh, you know, we thought that we might get one article somewhere, but it was there was a huge amount of, of hunger for it. Um, and we felt like there was, we were kind of making media, positive media space. Uh, even like the BBC did a program on, uh, it was called Does Does Islam Need Better PR? And they did it around the campaign. Um, so yeah, that was that was frightening. But uh, I feel like the the need would always outweigh the fear. And I feel like there is a need for, for Muslim women who are articulate. I mean, I try to be. Uh, you are. <laughs> to, uh, to speak uh, about our own faith and our, our own personal relationship as well to our faith um, in ways that are... That, that will have resonance and that are genuine and, and authentic. We can't speak about the public conversations and particularly women in public conversations and perhaps particularly Muslim women in public conversations mm. without talking about abuse. Mm. How much abuse and criticism do you receive? 
So whenever I've done a, a written article for The Guardian, for example, the comments below the line have right from the beginning been pretty scathing, pretty horrible. Um, I stopped reading them, to be honest, because I just I couldn't uh, bring myself to read some of them because they are attacking uh, me, my faith. Uh, and I'm not the thickest. I don't have the thickest skin. Uh, even though I'm in the public domain, but I, so I kind of I, I I try to step back a bit from the abuse, uh, and I I get it on Twitter sometimes um, as well. Uh, following anything, even if I'm tweeting about cakes, I mean I wrote about Nadi Hussain winning the Bake Off, and you know even that would get very negative comments. Uh, so it but it comes with the territory. Uh, unfortunately, uh, women seem to get more abuse. And when you're Muslim, you get more abuse. So, you know, it's pretty much a double whammy. Do you, um, do you ever feel unsafe from it? Do you have to mute people? How, what are the kind of strategies that you have to put in I, place? I generally, if it's really bad, then I will, I'll mute them. Um, I will report them to Twitter. Um, but thankfully, I haven't had it as bad as, as other people have. I haven't had any death threats. I, some friends have. Mm. Uh, so it hasn't come to that yet. Yeah. Um, but you, you try to you try to manage it as best you can and think, well, the, would these people ever say this if they were right in front of me? Because sometimes I feel like saying, why don't you meet me for a coffee and just talk yeah. about it? Talk about how much you hate me. Yeah. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't say this. It's these, you know, they're just hiding behind the keyboards. Yeah, they do. I get a sort of reasonably small amount but some and I do find that if you just respond with kind of kindness and courtesy and kind of open mind and say oh, I'm sorry to hear that you disagreed mm. with me there tell me more and uh, <laughs> refuse to get riled by it very yes, very yeah. soon people will calm that's down that's what they want yeah, yeah. exactly if you, yeah. if you if you if you get defensive and snap back it just escalates and gets very dirty although you know, I have had death threats and I do think that at oh that point gosh. you just go that's horrible I uh, I sent them to the police and they sent around the safer neighborhoods team which oh. was Deeply unhelpful. Right. That's thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's a digital yeah. world here, people. Oh my goodness me! Yeah, no, it, it is. It can be really frightening. But you're you're right. It is the way we respond to things, um, and the media is very much about that, isn't it? About responding or reacting yeah. or overreacting, and yeah. you know sometimes we we do overreact. Uh, the Muslim communities can do that sometimes. So I like to try to be a bit calm. And just put some humour in there as well sometimes. Yeah. Just to kind of mock it a bit. Like, we'll use British satire. <laughs> yeah. I do feel like, you know, one of the things this podcast about is about our public conversations and how we do them in ways that are more emotionally intelligent. Mm. And that, uh, you know, one of, the, one of our previous guests said, just realise there is an option other than outrage in your response. Mm. Try and develop a habit of, you know, taking a breath, taking some mm. time before you respond. Yes, for sure. Mm. Um. Do you think things are getting better or worse in terms of us engaging across differences of belief, non-belief? On one hand, the kind of new atheist moment seems to have ebbed a little bit. On the other hand, you know, it feels like we're perhaps getting more tribal and we're seeing the growth of the far right. Um, you know, you've, you've been working probably in this area for a similar amount of time as I have. Do you get a sense of it's getting better or worse or is it just different? Oh, I, this is always so difficult to answer, isn't it? Um, I always say it's like that that opener of the tale of two cities. It's like you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It feels like things are getting better in certain ways, but then there are also things that are, that are becoming horrifically worse. Um, so I feel interfaith uh, is becoming a bit smarter. Uh, I find that in my own experience in the last few years, it's become a lot deeper. 
uh, a lot more authentic. Um, and that is often about the person behind some of these initiatives. So it's about their vision um, and about their intelligence of putting certain people together. So I went on an interfaith uh, retreat, leadership retreat. It was called, um, it was at that time, it was Co- Cambridge Coexist Leadership Program. And now it's, uh, it's, senior faith and leadership program. I was very like, oh, I don't want to go. I'm not a, I'm not a leader. I'm not a faith leader. Um, but I was encouraged to go by a, a fellow a Muslim friend. And uh, it was wonderful. I met rabbis, I met um, vicars. And we, not only did we engage on, on that level through the retreat superficially, it actually went a lot deeper. So now years later, I am, I'm going to the rabbi's daughter's wedding now because like, we've just maintained this really close friendship. I've gone around multiple times <laughs> for Friday night dinner and Shabbat. Um, and it's it's not just an interfaith thing. We're actually friends. We're actually, I, I seek advice from them. Um, they help me out sometimes with uh, recommendations for my programs because I want it to be authentic. I don't want to just kind of Google something about Judaism. I'm like, okay, I want to write something about the divine feminine. You know, what can I talk about from a Jewish perspective? So it it, it feeds into my work, into my personal life, um, into the the way I am in the in the world. And I think that was important that that we had that opportunity to to know each other in a very in a trusted space. So that was one thing. But then also, of course, we all have really worried about you know this rise of 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 the far right and of anger. And frustration and, um, yeah, and hate crime always seems to go up. Yes. Um, you know, after any horrific terrorist atrocity, then it's often the, the Muslim women who will be attacked. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough times, but I think that there is a glimmer of hope still. I'm not completely giving up on the hope, even though I have been cynical in the past. <laughs> but there is always hope. I um, One of the things we talk about here at Theos is, you know, it's, it, it's a complete oversimplification, but we sometimes say facts don't change minds, friendship does. Mm. That we can't hear an argument so or true. understand a new way of seeing the world in uh, unless it is often, unless it is embodied in a messenger that we trust, that someone who seems enough like us. You know, one of the things we're trying to be is the kind of religious people that are enough like the, you know, those outside religions that we can be trusted, we can feel safe, you know, we're not the exactly. fruit loops. Um, and, and therefore these riches of these ideas and these traditions that we think help everyone flourish yeah. um, are more accessible. Whereas often we get put off by our kind of deep seated tribalism, I think, where we think I'm not like them. So I feel slightly yeah. anxious and I don't feel at home and therefore I'm not going to engage. It takes quite a lot of concentration exactly. to deal with that. And it sounds like you've set up networks to make that easier. Yeah. Well, yeah. Other people have just provided that, those platforms for me. And, and, and he kind of, the guy behind it knew that that would happen. He was like, yeah, I knew that you would all go in that direction, but I don't think you realize I would go end up going to their wedding, but <laughs> I can't wait for that. But yeah, it's, it's so true. It is about the, that creating those spaces and, uh, and also like you, when you mentioned about fruit loops, you know, that's often something that's associated with the religious people. And I really want to completely overthrow that idea. So and that's why I love the opportunity of doing like pause for thought on radio too, um, because I'm talking about my lived experience as a Muslim woman. I'm talking about the funny things. I often, I often talk about like, um, well, I public humiliate, publicly humiliate myself quite often <laughs> through pause for thought, but I just want to be open and honest um, and just connect with people and, and just make them think that, you know, faith is actually really complex. It's fun. It's dynamic. It's, you know, it, 
it can help you through the difficulties and you know and I just I just want people to know that it's a real lived experience and it's not something that's restrictive or boring um one of the things I try and ask all the guests is uh, we have a real range of listeners to the podcast which is amazing um so uh some listeners will be Muslims, so they'll already know this. So for those who are Christians and perhaps those who are atheists, are there things that um, each of those two groups could do better or could understand better? I personally, as a Christian, feel like I just want to understand, are there ways that we use language or assumptions that we make about Muslims um, that are, are, are hurtful or unhelpful um, and you know, for, for atheists or the non-religious as well? I think we all have those prejudices against each other, don't we? Um, it's about just stepping back from your own, like, you know, kind of judgment, quick judgment, knee-jerk judgment, and actually seeing that, you know, there is a, there is a human being, there is a person right opposite you, and just connect with that person at that hu- human level. I, I think that we, we just, we walk along and, like, we, we really are quick to judge and we have so many prejudices. I, I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm sure I have prejudices as well. <laughs> Um, but I try and battle them myself. Um, and I really would like to understand people better through through conversations, uh, through helping other people get into the media as well. So I, I feel like I'm not just talking about my own faith. I, I want to talk about everyone's beliefs. So there was a, someone from The Guardian contacted me saying, do you know a Muslim family who would, would be happy to be featured in this big thing about big families? And I was like, you know what? I know a really great Jewish family. And, uh, and I contacted them and they said, oh, well, we wouldn't normally do this, but we trust you. And I was like, well, I trust the journalist who contacted me. So uh, will you do it? And they're an Orthodox Jewish family. And they ended up being in this Guardian piece, which was great. And that's because of the the trust and the friendship that we had built up. So I think those things are so important to inform all these articles in this public discourse about faith or non-faith as yeah. well. Yeah, it, it it's sort of frustrating because it's so simple and it almost sounds like an old chestnut, but the older I get, the more I think it's all about relationships. All of life is about relationships. Mm-hmm. The only thing to get things done is through relationships. Um but that is uh, not fashionable advice. But also can... not everyone has access as well. So some people grow up in areas where they only know like one set of people is a bit monolithic existences. So I'm very fortunate that I have had uh, like these multiple kind of uh, platforms, these different experiences, different relationships. Um, but so that's why I feel like sometimes maybe, you know, through the media, if it's something that is pretty honest and authentic, that people can kind of see something, have a glimpse of what it is like to to be a person of faith, or you know, to Just live a different life. Yeah, live themselves. a slightly different life. You know, and I and I, I mean, I have have atheist friends as well. And I, we just just hang out, <laughs> just have fun together, and we and we respect each other's beliefs completely. We're not out to really do not go out there to convert each other. <laughs> that is the main thing. I take away from everything, but it's, it's important to um, just open your mind up to different people and different opinions. Rena, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Buffet, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. 
We'd really love to hear what you think. Probably easiest via Twitter if you're there, at sacred underscore podcast, or me directly at Theos Elizabeth. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're now on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect with us via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk. 